Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. All right, come on, we're going to get into the Word. If you have a Bible, I want you to take it out. And if uh, you do not, uh, fear not, we will have the Scriptures on the screen for you this morning. I want to get right into uh, some Scripture. I'm excited to share this with you today. I think it's going to help some people out. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, uh, at our Connect table out there, we've got free Bibles that we would love to give you, uh, as long as you promise to read it, okay? Don't leave it on your nightstand and let it collect dust, uh, or use it as a coaster, which some people do. Uh, We'd love to give you a free Bible, and we preach from a a single translation most of the time here, and that's the translation translation that's out there, Uh, and it is an accurate one. It's not one we made up, just to be clear. Um, We're going to go to the book of Acts, chapter 28 today, and uh, if you got a Bible, you can open it up to that, and I want to talk to you about a guy named Paul and a bit of a rough day he had. Uh, There's a a bit of a backstory here for those that are new to the team. Paul is one of the main characters in the New Testament. Uh, He wrote two-thirds of the books in the New Testament, and he's kind of a hero in the faith. Uh, He went all around the known world during his lifetime, preached the gospel, planted many, many churches. Uh, His journey started where he had kind of a really cool encounter with God on the road to Damascus. You can check that out in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9. But at this point in in Paul's journey in Acts chapter 28, he is headed to Rome, which will be his ultimate final destination. He's going to give his life as a martyr in Rome for the gospel. And uh, before he goes there, the, the reason he's on his way to Rome on a boat is because he stood trial before the Roman governor a guy named Festus, and he made an appeal because there were some wrongful accusations being made about him from the Jewish people to see Caesar, and he was hoping that by seeing Caesar, the emperor of Rome at the time, uh, he could find his way out of the situation he found himself in. And so he appeals to Caesar, and Festus says, well, if you appeal to Caesar, off to Caesar you will go. And so Paul and 275 other prisoners, they get loaded onto this boat in the worst time of the year for travel in the, in the late fall, early winter, and they set out to sea to make their way to Rome. And somewhere along the way, a storm breaks out from a wind called the Northeasterner, and uh, it's a pretty bad storm. They get stuck in it for two weeks, and the boat literally starts to break apart, and everyone on the boat freaks out, and they're like, this is how we die. This is how we go out. Well, one night, Paul, uh, as, as they were in the middle of the storm, he, he gets a, a vision or a word from God in a dream, and God says, don't worry. Everybody on the boat is going to make it out safely from this storm. Go tell the captain. Go tell the guards. Go tell all the prisoners. It's going to be fine as long as they follow your directions, and so Paul does that. He tells everybody, hey, it's going to be fine. Just, just do what I I say. And sure enough, uh, they run the boat into a sandbar. It, it, it falls apart, and they find themselves now on an island called Malta. And that's what we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 28, verse 1. It says, once we were safe on the shore, we learned that we were on, an island, uh, on the island of Malta. The people of the island were very kind to us. It was cold and rainy, so they built a fire on the shore to welcome us. As Paul gathered an armful of sticks and was laying them on the fire, a poisonous snake, driven out by the heat, bit him on the hand. This is the first Pentecostal snake handling service in the New Testament. Just kidding. No, it's not. We're going to do that afterwards in the lobby. Just kidding. Uh, Verse 4, the people of the island saw it hanging from his hand, and they said to each other, a murderer, no doubt. Though he escaped the sea, justice will not permit him to live. Verse 5, but Paul shook off the snake into the fire, and he was unharmed. I'm going to share one other scripture with you, First uh, John, John chapter 4, verse 4, and then we're going to pray and get into this. It says this, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Come on, turn to somebody next to you, get a little bit of swagger and say, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
Okay, there was not a lot of swagger in that. Come on, turn to the other person. Let's try it again. Say, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I like it. All right, that's my church. Hey, if you're going to take notes uh, in true fashion, I have named this after a pop song. And someone accused me last night of liking this artist more than my kids. I promise it just is coincidental that I've mentioned her twice in the last two sermons. Uh, but borrowing from the great prophet Taylor Swift, we're going to call this, this sermon, Shake It Off. Shake it off if you're going to take notes. Because the players are going to play and the haters are going to hate. All right, shake it off. Let's pray. Say less. I will. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you this morning. And God, I thank you that uh, while there is an amazing concert happening across the street and all the parking has been consumed, here we are in the house of God, ready to receive from your word, committed to your house. And so I pray that uh, regardless of what we went through to get here today, the parking trauma, the, the chaos out there, as we sit in this room, I pray that you would bless us with something significant before we leave this place. Holy Spirit, that you would do a work in our hearts that would transform us before we leave church. We did not come here today to sing songs and to hear some guy preach. We came here today because we believe that gathering in your house and being in your presence and hearing from your word has the power to transform our lives. So do that today in each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, and everyone said amen. Amen. So since it's Father's Day, uh, I figured I would... Uh, confess a few things to you as a father. I love being a dad. It's, uh, it's one of the greatest joys of my life. I think it's one of the greatest responsibilities of life. Um, and there are some things that, because I'm a father, are assumed I'm supposed to do in my household. Have you know, there's just some like expectations of fathers in your house. Uh, in my home, uh, as the father, I am the resident trash taker outer. That is something that all fathers should do. Uh, I am also the resident toilet plunger. Uh, or the plungerer, I guess. I'm not the plunger, just to be clear. Um, as uh, cliche as it might sound, I am the pickle jar opener uh, because sometimes my wife's grip strength is a little weak, and so I need to assist in that department. Um, but there is one job that society has thrust upon me as the father of the household that I just refuse to accept as a dad. Uh, one that I have relinquished my responsibilities to my wife in the name of equal opportunity um, or in the name of terrified person that I am. Uh, and that is the resident bug exterminator in my home. I hate bugs. All kinds. I'm equal opportunity with the bugs. I hate the ants. I hate the spiders. I hate the cockroaches. I hate anything that crawls. I hate Bugs. Ask my friends, ask those that are closest to me, if I feel a bug on me, or if I like walk through a spider web, I flail uncontrollably like a child. Like we were just on vacation last week or a couple weeks ago, and uh, we're sitting on this lawn chair on, uh, beside the pool, and I felt like, I guess it was a moth on my face, and I just, everyone else is calmly reading their books, and I start screaming and running around in circles. I hate bugs, they freak me out. And, and this proves to be problematic anytime I have to kill a bug. And granted, I have relinquished that responsibility, but occasionally my wife is not around or she expects more of me than I, she should. Um, but I, it is my job to take care of the bug. And so I have devised a few schemes to get rid of insects in my home. And these are to help you. I'm going I'm to give you these couple to you today so that you don't have to mess with bugs the way that you have maybe been taught from a child to mess with them. Um, I'll tell you what I don't do. I don't do the shoe thing because I buy nice shoes and I don't want to mess up my shoes with bug guts. Um, I don't do like the paper towel or the tissue thing because that's gross, and like you can feel it crunch underneath your hand. And God forbid you kill a pregnant one and just, poof, you know, all their babies go everywhere, right? So I, I have utilized these three methods to exterminate bugs from my home. 
Uh, number one is the cup and the paper method. You've done this one before, right? You find the bug, you put it behind the cup, you slide the piece of paper behind it, and then you release it into its destiny outside. That's a, that's a good method. Um, I've also found that for flying insects, there's a contraption. It's called an electric, uh, an electric fly swatter or an electric uh, tennis racket. And anytime something is flying around in your house, if you can't get it to, to land on the wall, that's okay. You just take this thing and you just go like all kinds of sword action with it. and You can kill anything in the air. It's great. It's also great for disciplining your children. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> I've never done that, okay? Uh, but my favorite of the three methods is the vacuum cleaner method. I bought a vacuum cleaner at Costco, and it has like this three-foot wand, and it's the best. You don't even have to get like near the bug. You can just stand at a safe distance, suck that thing directly into the vacuum cleaner, rush it outside to the garbage pail, and release it back into the pits of hell where it belongs. That, that is the best bug-killing method. And 99% of the time, one of those three methods is going to work. However. I discovered a few years ago during the summer that my methodology was flawed and I needed to find yet another way to exterminate bugs. Here's the setting. It's 11 o'clock at night. My wife and I lay down into bed. We're getting ready to go to sleep. And this was uh, before we moved to San Francisco. Uh, we find ourselves uh, in our bedroom with some vaulted ceilings. And I look at the ceiling and this sucker is hanging out. Come on, tell me the devil is not real, okay? That is... That is a spawn from the pits of hell. You can take him off the screen. This is called a house centipede. And there he is right above the bed. And you know the rules. You cannot leave a bug on the ceiling when you go to bed. Because if you do at best, he's coming to cuddle with you that night. At worst, and we've all seen the documentaries, you're going to eat him before the morning comes, right? He's, he's making his way into your mouth. I'm just throwing that out there. So we have to get rid of it. But here's the problem. It's 11 o'clock at night. My daughters are asleep in the bedroom next to us, so I can't do the vacuum cleaner thing because I was going to wake them up. I, I couldn't do the electric tennis racket thing because our batteries were dead inside the electric tennis racket, and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to find another way to get rid of this thing. So I resorted to the cup and paper method. However, I discovered that I did not have a cup large enough to fit that sucker on the other side of it. So here was my plan. I went into my, my closet, and I grabbed the top of a shoebox. And I thought to myself, I will scrape this bug off the ceiling with the shoebox. He'll fall into the shoebox. I'll throw the shoebox on the floor and smash him underneath there, put a piece of paper underneath him, and then I'll take him outside. Flawless, right? Problem was I couldn't reach the ceiling. So I get a chair, and I'm standing on this chair on my tiptoes, and I'm like, I still can't reach this bug. But I thought, if I just give it a little hop, then I'm going to get this dude. He's going to come down. We'll be on the ground. Everything will be fine. So I'm standing precariously on this chair. I get on my tiptoes. I've got the, the shoebox top in my hand. And I jump and I scrape the ceiling where this bug is at as I'm jumping. However, as I jump, the chair from underneath me flies across the room. I go flying through the air. I land on the small of my back, knock the wind out of myself, and I am paralyzed on the floor. I would love to tell you that my wife came rushing to my aid, but instead, she sat in the bed and she laughed uncontrollably <laughs> at her husband pain on the floor. So after about like 30 seconds, once I've caught my breath, I like barely hobble over to the bed and I lay down on the bed and I can't move. I'm still feeling kind of paralyzed. And all of a sudden, I feel something. 
I'm like, babe, 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 get it, get it, get it. This thing's crawling on my face. So my wife grabs a shoe and starts beating me and beating our bed until this bug is just obliterated on my pillow. We burn the pillow, naturally, and the rest is history. For about 10 seconds, I found myself laying on a bed, incapable of moving, while the very thing that I hated was crawling all over me. Now, pardon the ridiculous analogy and the way I'm going to connect this to Scripture, but I think that is a rather vivid picture of the way many people find themselves on their spiritual journey today. Paralyzed, feeling incapable of moving, incapable of making progress in the things that God has called you to make progress in, and it feels like the devil himself is crawling all over you. He's messing with your finances. He's messing with your family. He's messing with your future, and you can't do anything to stop it. I don't know if you have ever walked into a season of life where it feels like you can't move and you've got some stuff that's just pinned to you, a situation that is just stuck on you, a problem that won't go away. I don't know if you've ever been in bed at night and fear and anxiety seem to be crippling you and you can feel it like a weight on your chest at two o'clock in the morning, but I have been there before. And I would venture a guess today that there are some people in the room that feel pinned down by an addiction or pinned down by fear or pinned down by a pattern in their life that they can't seem to shake. But here's what I believe by the Holy Spirit today. I believe by the word of God and by the presence of God that we're going to take a play out of the book of Taylor Swift and out of the book of the Apostle Paul. And we are going to learn today how to shake off the enemy's intent for our life and leave this place with some fresh freedom. Can I get a decent amen on a Sunday morning? Acts chapter 28. I love this story. This is like, this is a slow pitch for a preacher. When you read this story, you immediately go, oh, that'll preach. There's a sermon in there. Because yes, it is a literal story about a guy who one day found himself on an island and was bit by a snake and shook that snake back off into the fire that it came from. But there are some unavoidable spiritual analogies in this story. This is, this is perhaps one of the oldest narratives in the book. Here you have a guy who's doing his best to pursue God, to walk out the call of God on his life, to follow what God is telling him to do, and somewhere along the line out pops this snake, and it tries to rob him of everything that God had for his future. It tries to take him out prematurely. That sound familiar to anybody else but me? You go all the way back to the very beginning of the book, in the book of Genesis. What do you find? You find two people doing their best to serve God, walking around with him in the garden. And one day, a snake shows up on the scene. The devil disguises a snake. And what does he do? He tempts them. He causes them to fall into sin. And he tries to rob them of the relationship and the future that they had with God. It's literally the oldest play in the book. And here he is again doing the same thing. A snake shows up on the scene and tries to rob Paul of his future. And newsflash, it hasn't changed since then. It's the same strategy the enemy uses against you today. He does not have an original thought. He tries to interrupt your journey 
while you're doing the very thing that God has called you to do and latch on to you and take you out before your time. Steal, kill, destroy, repeat. Steal, kill, destroy, repeat. That's what the devil does. But, but Paul has a rather interesting response to the enemy's attack. When this snake comes up and latches onto his hand, he doesn't freak out. He doesn't run around in circles and in terror. He just shakes it back off into the fire that it came from. I don't know about you, but today, if we went down the street and we went to Ocean Beach and we had a little bonfire over there in one of those concrete pits and I came over and threw some sticks on the fire pit and a snake came out and latched itself onto my hand, I would not be very casual about that. I would probably run in circles and scream, get it off, get it off, get it off! At best, I'd go home and get a vacuum cleaner, okay? Like that's at best, but not Paul. Paul looks at this thing and very casually just shakes it off as if it's just a mere distraction and annoyance, not something that he's concerned will actually take him out. How do you do that? I want that kind of attitude in the face of attack. Now, it is tempting to read this story and think for a moment that Paul is just some superhero and maybe he's just this intimidatingly buff guy that, you know, doesn't really care about snakes and, you know, kind of the crocodile Dundee of the New Testament, like no big deal. Or, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, ah, come on, the snake, come on, get into the fire immediately. Ah, like. But that's not Paul. If, if you just read some theological notes about this guy, here's what you'll find. He was frail. He was a rather, like, unintimidating individual. Most people didn't take him seriously. In fact, many people believed that he was hunchback and, and, and that he wasn't, he wasn't at all a person when he walked in the room that demanded any kind of respect. So we can throw out the idea that he's just some macho guy and that's why he threw this snake back into the fire. So, so there must be something internal, not something external, that allowed Paul the audacity to simply look at this snake and say, you don't bother me, get back into the fire. I want that for my life, and I want that for your life today. I want the enemy's attack to feel like nothing more than a distraction to you, where you don't even give it a second thought. You just begin to move on in the things that God has called you to move forward in. So how do we do that? How do we do that today? I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts out of this scripture, three very simple things that we can draw out of this. And I believe, I believe if you implement these things, and I know that sometimes you come to church and hear points, but hear my heart on this. If you will understand and embody these three things, I believe you will see victory in some areas of your life like you never have before. I'm so convicted of this today. So if you're taking notes, I want you to take something out to write with, and we're going to go through these. Number one, if you're going to be the kind of person that overcomes the enemy, can shake off the attack of the enemy, you need to stay hot. You need to stay hot. Done. No, not like that, okay? <laughs> I want you to see something here that is a spiritual truth that if we do not understand, we will mistake the source, the origin, and the reason for the season that we're walking through right now. Notice when this snake comes out of the fire. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 28, verse 3. It says, a poisonous snake driven out by the heat bit him on the hand. Driven out by the heat. There is something about heat. There is something about the temperature getting warmer that drives out a snake. If it's cold outside, the snake will hibernate. It's never coming out. 
But the second things start to heat up, out comes the enemy, out comes the snake. I remember uh, a few years ago when um, we were part of building uh, the new facility for the Father's House Vacaville, back where we came from. And uh, we purchased this 22 acres as a church and built an amazing facility on it. But the 22 acres was out in the middle of this field and there was nothing else around it. And after construction, we discovered that we had kind of built the church on top of like this snake playground. There were all kinds of snakes under the ground that we didn't know about. And uh, we opened the church in December, and it was cold outside, and so you didn't really see any of these snakes. But the second the weather started to heat up, come June, come July, come August, all of a sudden, there were snakes literally all over the property, like in the parking lot and up at the church. And that's not the most welcoming thing when you walk up as a new, you know, a new guest, like, oh, it's that kind of church. Okay. I'm going to go somewhere else. But we got snakes everywhere. And, and we would have to go around and we'd have to kill these snakes. And it took a few years before all of a sudden the snakes realized, like, this isn't where we're supposed to live anymore. Why? Because there's something about the hot weather, something about the rising temperature that drives out the snakes. Let me ask you something. Have you ever wondered why it is that the moment you start getting serious about the things of God, it seems like you find yourself in the middle of a storm? Have you ever wondered why the second you start serving and the second you start giving and the second you start praying and the second you start getting in the word like you never have before, it seems like there is temptation at every corner and the enemy's on your back and you're getting attacked from every angle? What is that? Let me tell you what that is. The enemy hates you hot. He hates it when the fire of God starts to get up inside a believer and they start running after the things of God and the spiritual things start heating up in their life. It drives out the enemy. Write this down if you're taking notes. The fire of God always agitates the enemy. It always agitates the enemy. If you are a cold Christian or a lukewarm Christian, if you attend church erratically and if you give erratically and you don't ever serve and you pick up the Bible a couple times a year and you don't pray, chances are you're not seeing a whole lot of snakes in your life because you are not making the enemy scared. There's nothing intimidating about your spiritual journey. It's cold. But buckle up if you begin to turn up the heat. When you start praying big prayers over your marriage and over your children, when you start believing for revival in your city, when you start seeing your business as a channel of income that can build the kingdom of God, when you start doing things that turn up the spiritual heat in your life, buckle up because out comes some snakes. It's the nature of the enemy. You have posed a threat to hell and he intends to do something about it. If you feel like your marriage is constantly under attack, there is something about your unity that is petrifying to the enemy. If you feel like your kids are constantly under attack, there is something about your children's destiny. They're going to change a generation. They're going to do something significant for the kingdom of God, and the enemy is scared about it. If you feel like your finances are constantly under attack, God knows and the enemy knows that the second you begin to get some wealth, you're going to use that wealth to expand the kingdom of God and not just hoard it for yourself. You have scared the enemy. And out he comes when he's scared. God, I wish believers understood this because I think so often as Christians, we mistake what's happening in our circumstance and we see opposition as an opportunity to get cold with the things of God. 
When opposition comes, when the finances are under attack, or when the schedule's under attack, we're like, okay, I'm just going to draw back. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to lay back. I'll get serious about it later. No, you're just falling into the ploy of the enemy. Opposition is nothing more than confirmation that you are doing the very thing that God has called you to do. It's the very co-signature from God saying, now you're living in the center of my will. You have scared hell because you're robbing souls from him. You're doing something that's going to affect this planet for eternity. And yeah, there's always going to be opposition, but greater is me. I'm going to be able to deal with your enemy much greater than you will. Keep on keeping on. Press forward. Stay hot. Let me tell you, when we started this church, (laughs) buckle up. There, There were all kinds of snakes in our life. All kinds of opposition. I remember the months leading up to launch, it was like anything that could go wrong went wrong. And I'm not talking about for the church, I'm talking about for my life personally. My kids were incredibly ill for literally like 30 days straight. They had like chicken pox all over their body and when one got healthy, the other one got sick. Just about the time we could finally leave the house and we weren't quarantined there anymore, my daughter broke off both of her two front permanent teeth and then we had to get some fake ones because I can't let her walk around looking like that. We got these surprise bills in the mail that were astronomical and just all kinds of stuff was falling apart. And we did everything we knew how to do as believers. They're like playing worship music in the house. My wife is dousing olive oil over every door frame. Like we're rebuking Satan and like we're doing everything we know how to do. And I remember one day we're sitting in, in our living room. We just, after like stuff had hit the fan, we just looked at each other and we literally started laughing. We're like, we should know this by now. The enemy's scared. God's about to do something in San Francisco that is significant, and the enemy is petrified. Like, I'm not going to draw back. I see this as confirmation that God is on this, and he's about to move, and we're going to keep on fighting. We're going to stay hot. you got to stay hot as a believer. Don't draw back. See opposition for what it is. It's confirmation, my friend. You're in the middle of God's will for your life. Number two. If you're going to be the kind of believer that knows how to shake off the enemy's intent in your life, you need to remember Rome. Remember Rome. One of my life verses, one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible is uh, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. And it says, without vision, people cast off restraint or people perish. Paraphrase, what that means is when you don't have a vision for your life, when there's nothing you're running after, it becomes easy to throw in the towel and quit early. It becomes easy to just stop and say, you know, this is getting hard. I'm going to quit. Like, it's not a big deal. But the antithesis of that is also true. When you have vision, you can press through any circumstance. When you have vision, you refuse to quit. You just keep on going after what God has for you. And I would believe, although I never met the Apostle Paul, that this was a scripture that was very near and dear to his heart. He probably had it tattooed somewhere on his body. Like, without vision, people cast off restraint. Because if you look at the New Testament characters very few would come even close to the vision that Paul had for his life. He was laser focused on what God had for him. When he was beaten, when he was imprisoned, it did not matter. He knew that God's plan for his life was not finished and he continued to run after it. And if you could water down that vision, if you could water down what he was running after in this season of his life to one word, here's what it would be, Rome. He was running after Rome. If you rewind all the way back to Acts chapter 23, Paul is in prison at this time. Things are looking a little hairy. It appears as though there's a mob of people that want to take him out. 
And he goes to bed one night, and the Holy Spirit speaks to him in a dream. He says, hey, Paul, just as you have preached the gospel here in Jerusalem, you're going to preach the gospel in Rome. I'm not done with you yet. There's still an assignment for you to complete. You're going to go to Rome, and you're going to preach. Now, that sounds like an amazing promise, but in true God fashion, it was given to him in a season where it made no sense. Most promises God gives to you are in a season where it doesn't make sense. Hey, you're going to start a business and it's going to be incredible, but I'm broke. Hey, you're going to launch that ministry and you're going to see people set free in this specific area. Yeah, but God, I'm still entangled in addiction in that very area that you're telling me I'm going to plant a ministry in. You're going to win a city. Yeah, that city doesn't want anything to do with God. He gives you a promise when it looks impossible. And such was the case for Paul. When God gives him this promise, he's in prison and people want to kill him. Things do not look good. But he believed God. He believed that that promise was from God and it was for him to run after. And that vision became the thing that drove him out of his current circumstance. That, that vision became the thing that he hoped for beyond what he was experiencing. So the next morning, when a mob of people showed up and tried to take him out, there was something in Paul that said, God's not done with me because I have to go to Rome. And when Paul was on a boat with 275 other prisoners and the weather tried to take him out and the boat was falling apart, Paul could confidently look at everybody around him and say, this ain't it. This isn't how I die because I have to go to Rome. And when a snake shows up on the scene and latches itself to Paul's arm, he can look at that snake with confidence and say, seriously, this is all you got? This is not where I go out because I still haven't been to Rome yet. And as long as I haven't been to Rome yet, God's not done with me. You must have Rome. There has to be something in you that you're chasing after that God has promised to you, that you have not yet seen fulfilled, that will keep you running even in the midst of a difficult situation, even in the midst of a storm. You continue to press on because you know, this ain't it, God's got something more for me. I remember a few years ago, uh, right after we had announced that we were planting this church and we had all the dreams in our heart to see what God was gonna do here at the Father's House San Francisco, and I was on a trip to the Philippines with uh, my pastor, and we were doing a leadership conference in Davao. And uh, on the way home from Davao, we were uh, getting on a plane from Davao to Manila, and uh, I sat down in my seat, and uh, right before the flight takes off, this uh, elderly Filipino lady, she comes rushing on the plane. She was obviously a little frazzled and running late. And she sits down in the seat next to me. And uh, as she sits down and puts her seatbelt on, I could tell, like, she's a little nervous about this flight. She's shaking a little bit. And she reaches down into her bag, and she grabs this little Catholic book of prayers, and she turns to a prayer that's like the, the prayer for air travel. And I'm like, that is awesome. Like, you guys have an air travel prayer? That's amazing. Like, we don't have that. Like, what does it say, you know? Is that in the Bible? And, uh, and she starts praying this thing out, and she does her deal, and she puts the book away, and she sits back down kind of white-knuckled on the, on, on the airplane uh, seat there. And so, you know, being the loving and, and pastoral guy that I am, I, I turned to her, and I tapped her on the shoulder, and I said, uh, uh, boo! No, I didn't say that. <laughs> That's terrible. Uh, no, I turned to her, and I, and I said, um, hey, I noticed that you're a little, a little frightened about this flight. Um, I have good news for you. 
Everything's going to be fine. This fight is completely safe. So let me tell you why I know that. A couple years ago, God gave my wife and I a vision about planting a church in San Francisco. And we've just announced that we're going to do it. And I've got all these dreams in my heart and some prophetic words that God's given me about my future. And guess what? That church hasn't been planted yet. And since that church hasn't been planted yet and you're sitting next to me on a plane, this is not how I go. There is still something God has called me to do. And he's not done with me yet. And so you're going to be just fine. She nodded. I have no idea if she even understood what I said. <laughs> she held my hand and the plane took off and then we landed and everything was fine. What is that? That's Rome. That's something in my heart that I know that God hasn't completed yet. And as long as he hasn't completed it yet, he's not done with me. You must have something like that in your heart. What is it? Is it a business he's called you to start? Is it a ministry he's called you to start? Is it a city that you've been contending for? Is it a lost son or daughter that ain't back in the house yet, but you're going to keep on believing because God has promised that it shall be, that even though things look difficult right now, I'm going to continue to pursue because God told me I'm going to Rome. You, Rome will get you through any difficult circumstance in life. You can get through depression if you have Rome in your heart. You can get through diagnosis if you have Rome in your heart. You can get through difficulty if you have Rome in your heart. You can get through bankruptcy with Rome in your heart. And fill in the blank of whatever the snake is trying to latch onto you with. You can make it through that season if there's a Rome in your heart. But you got to get a vision. What is that? Even as I say this, off the notes for a moment here, I believe that there are some people in the room today that God spoke something to you even when you were younger, even in your teenage years or in your 20s, about something you would do for him, and you've laid that thing aside for a season, and you've said, you know what, that was for then, but it's not for now. Listen, God is not done with that call. The gift of God, the promise of God, and that prophetic word, it is not seasonal in nature. It is still the promise for your life, and I don't care if you're in your 60s or your 70s. You can pick up with faith that call again, and you can say, this is what God promised he would do in me and he hasn't done it yet so I don't care if I take it to my grave I'm going to run after this thing until I see it come to pass that's the nature of God's promises for your life you have to remember Rome last one number three if you're going to be the kind of believer that can shake off the attack of the enemy you need to remember he's in you he's in you I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. What's in you is greater than what's on you. What's in you is greater than what's on you. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, a scripture that I think we should all commit to memory because it's powerful. He that is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We all know who's in the world. According to the Bible, according to scripture, the enemy's been given dominion over this earth. If you're wondering why there's poverty and why there's hunger and why there's sickness, it's because we live on a broken, fallen planet. It is being occupied by the enemy and his minions. That's who's in the world. But, but who's in you? If you are a believer here today and you've confessed Jesus as Lord, who lives on the inside of you? Whose blood is running through your veins today? He goes by a number of names. He, he is... Jesus, the captain of the Lord's army, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is Emmanuel, the one that is with you. 
He is the almighty one, the all-knowing one, the provider, the healer. There's a lot of names for him. But there is one name that doesn't sound as majestic or powerful, but it's one that we must all be convinced of if we're going to deal with the snake bites in our life. And that is he is Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. <laughs> like, okay, the lamb? What do you mean? Isaiah 53, Matthew chapter 3, he's referred to as the lamb, and it's a prophetic statement about what Jesus would do. In the Old Testament, the sacrifice that would be made to pay for the price of sin was a, the blood of a lamb. And when the blood of the lamb was shed and was offered as a sacrifice, it would pay the price to make the people of God whole, white as snow, sin-free, blameless. And when Jesus, according to Isaiah 53, gave his life for us, his blood became the once and for all sacrifice that would atone for our sin. It would make us right with God. It would pay the price for our sin. It would make us white as snow. Today, if you're a believer, newsflash, you are blameless before God. There is nothing keeping you from his presence. Hebrews says that you can come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy. You can run right into the presence of God even if you sinned 30 seconds ago because of the blood of Jesus. He was the Lamb of God. But there is another aspect of the Lamb of God that I think is pretty important if we're going to understand how it pertains to the bite of the snake. Because whether you realize it or not, if you're going to overcome the snake, you literally need the blood of a lamb. If today you and I were to go on a vacation to Malta, I don't know if it's a tourist destination or not, but let's just say we went there, same island that Paul went to. We found ourselves cold one evening and we gathered up some sticks and we threw them on a fire. And while that fire was, was burning, a, a viper came up out of the fire and latched itself onto your arm. After we tried everything we knew how to do, the vacuum, the tennis racket, and running around in circles, we got the viper off of you. We would run you over to the ER and we would quickly explain to the secretary, the administrator there, what happened. And they would rush you off into a room to be seen by a doctor because they understand that there's a limited period of time before you're going to lose your life if we don't deal with the poison that's now inside your system. So they would hook you up to an IV and you'd be laying there in a bed and someone would go off, maybe one of the nurses to a back room and they would search through the vials for the antidote and the anti-venom for the specific snake bite that you had. And once they found it, they would come rushing into your room and they would hook that anti-venom up to your IV. And the second that anti-venom made its way into your veins... The, the effects of the snake would begin to reverse, and within a short period of time, you'd find yourself completely healthy again. And perhaps while you were sitting there in the bed and you were experiencing your body coming back to its normal state, you picked up that vial of antivenom and you began to read the ingredients. You might be surprised to find that the main ingredient in an antivenom from a snake is the blood of a lamb. Now, don't go to your phone and Google that. You can do that afterwards. You're like, this dude's a liar. No, I promise. I'm telling you the truth. See, scientists have discovered that within the chemical makeup of a lamb's blood, it contains the power to overcome the venom of any snake. There is something inside the bloodstream of a lamb that can conquer the snake. This is why if you see a, a pasture of sheep or they're hanging out somewhere in a field. They can be walking right along amidst the holes for the snakes to hang out in, and they can get bit on their ankles all day long, and it does not affect them because their blood overcomes the snake. 
And so, scientists, they have harvested the blood of lambs after they have injected the lamb with every kind of snake venom they can find. And once the blood has conquered that particular stream of venom, they harvest it out of the lamb and they vial it so that when humanity faces the bite of a snake, they have the antidote necessary to bring healing and wholeness and reverse its effects. Come on, I cannot preach this any better than it sounds. Science is only proving something that all of us should already be convinced of. That the blood of the lamb has conquered every sin and every problem and every attack of the enemy that he will throw at you. It has already been paid for. It said in Isaiah 53, we thought that his shame and his sin and his beating was a result of something that he did, but he carried upon himself our sins and our sickness. And in the same way a lamb is injected with the venom of a snake, God took upon himself your sin and your sickness and your shortcoming and your guilt and your shame because he knew that you couldn't deal with it on your own, but his blood had the power to overcome anything the enemy would throw at you. And once it had been accomplished, he offered his blood to you and he said, son, daughter, if you'll simply let this run through your veins, if you'll simply accept my blood, I will address every problem that you face on this planet and I will overcome the enemy. That's why it says in the book of Revelation, we overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. It says in Luke chapter 10 that you've been given power to trample on the snake and to overcome your enemy. And in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you. Greater is the bloodstream that is on the inside of you than the enemy who tries to attack you from the outside world. What are you facing today? What seems to be latching itself onto you? You need to remind yourself, son and daughter, I've got something in me that is greater than what's on me, and I'm going to declare that my God can conquer, yes, even this situation, because he's greater. I I'm so tired of seeing Christians get taken out in the midst of attack and get taken out prematurely because they don't understand how to address the attack of the enemy. Listen, you got to stay hot as a believer. When you see attack, you need to acknowledge it for what it is. It's confirmation that you're doing the very thing that God has called you to do. You need to get a vision in your heart for what God has called you for, and you need to run after that no looking to the right, no looking to the left. You just chase that sucker down until you see it happen. And you need to remember that greater is the God that lives on the inside of you than the enemy that's attacking you right now. And I promise you, if you do these things, if you apply this to your life, you'll be the kind of Christian that sees the attack of the enemy as nothing more than an annoyance, nothing more than a distraction, and you'll continue to run after God's plan for your life with some fresh fervor and some fresh victory in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.